I'll read Matthew 24:42 through 51. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of God. You can be seated. Hope you all are doing well. Um, I'm really glad that you're all here. My name is John Chambers. I'm the pastor. A lot of people call me Fudd. You're free to call me that for sure. Um, we've been going through the book of Matthew and just taking a section at a time, teaching through it. And so we're going to continue doing that today. Uh, as we've been going through the book of Matthew, we've kind of brought down each section into different teaching time, different teaching kind of points. And um, today's no different. We've been looking at specifically Matthew 24 and 25. And those two uh, sections or, or those two chapters together making up that one section is the coming king. So we're talking really um, in this specific uh, set of verses about the, the futuristic, the, the future time of when Christ is going to come. So that's, that's the... Uh, the that's kind of the setting of what's going on. If, if you've kind of tra- been tracking with us all the way through the book of Matthew, this is on a roughly around a Tuesday night, um, and Jesus is going to have the false trial on Thursday and then be put to uh, death on the cross on Friday. So this is the very end of his ministry, the very end of his life. And as he's finishing these last bits of things, the disciples come up to him, and you can see it there in chapter 24, verse 3. They ask him a question in chapter 24, verse Chapter 24, verse 3, they said, Tell us when these things will be and what will be the sign of the coming of the close of the age. Um, And they're basically saying, Tell us when these things, that's whenever the temple is going to be destroyed, and then also the sign of the coming of the close of the age. So they're kind of asking, When's the temple going to be destroyed? When are you going to come back? And that particular question, and those, those two questions they want asked is, is the rest of these, of these two chapters, 24, 25. And all Jesus is going to do in chapters 24, 25 is answer those two questions. Um, and so we're picking up at a, at a small little space, uh, as Ben just read, starting at verse 42 and, and chapter 24. We're going to do 42 through 51. Uh, so I'm going to pray, and then I'll give everybody a kind of a heads up on where, what we've looked at really fast, and then, we'll, and then we'll go into it. So let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this time. I pray that as we look at, uh, as we've been going through for all those that have been here each week, looking at a text that's, that's very similar in nature to the other weeks, that uh, we would find and hear fresh material. We would um, realize that the Holy Spirit is the teacher and, and not me, and that um, because of that, he always is wanting us to see new things and he's always wanting us to trust deeper and always wanting us to walk in holiness 
in a deeper level. And so I pray that as we look at your word this morning, for all those that have been here week after week, <coughs> um, that they would consider those things, God, and not just kind of check out because they've heard that Jesus is coming back and they need to be ready. Um, that they would really think about their lives and, and what that looks like and what that means. I pray for um, those that are maybe here for the first time and they're hearing some of these things on Christ's second coming. Um, God, that you would prepare their heart and mind to think on the end and that we should be, as believers, constantly living, constantly living in light of that end. That we shouldn't just... Uh, kind of know that it's going to happen and then live the rest of our life um, with our own selfish desires. But we should live every day, every hour in constant awareness that you could be coming back. We love you, God, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, just to get us up to the point of where we are in verse 42, basically what happened was when the disciples asked this question, um, that first half of chapter 24, Jesus lays out for them a, a kind of a timeline of what the end times is going to look like, what to expect and how it's going to look. And then after that, after he lays out the actual timeline, um, for the 24 and, and into 25, he's going to give some parables. And basically these parables, which we're going to look at two of them today, these parables are for the purpose of, since this is what the end time is going to look like, and what I've already told you, these parables are going to illustrate your need as Christians to be ready for that end time. And then the rest of it in chapter 25 at the very end talks about the final judgment. So uh, we are picking up right there at verse 42 where Jesus has now told us what the end times are basically going to look like as much as they can since they're in the end times. And we're going to look at parables now starting at verse 42. We're just going to look at two of them today. And the big idea of these parables is based on the fact that I've kind of told you what's going to happen and how that's going to look. This is the way I want you to live. This is the way I want, to prepare, I want you to prepare yourself for the way the, way the end times is going to happen. Um, so here's the reality. And let's just, we'll zoom in on chapter 24, verse 30. Uh, and it's this. Here it is. Jesus is going to come back. And when he comes back, it's going to be a big deal. It says right there in verse 30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. That is going to be a tremendously important day in future, in future comings and is going to have vast, vast importance, not just for that particular uh, people that are alive th- then, but it also has tremendous importance for us right now because we don't know when that's going to be. That could be like today. It could be five years from now. It can be a thousand years from now, but it could be in our lifetimes. And since that's the case, um, we need to be living in light of the reality of verse 30. And uh, that's what we're going to see today. We're going to see four proper, I I was going to write reactions to the the second coming, but I I don't want to uh, give us the hint that we're kind of passively reacting to the truth. Actually, so I took off the re, and it's just actions. Four proper actions, because we are not to be living in a passive manner to the idea that the second coming is coming, but instead in an active manner. Um, So these are four proper actions uh, that we as Christians should have in response to the second coming. Um, And so we're going to see this in two different parables. We're going to see four four of these things. So uh, let's go ahead and start in at verse 42. And we'll see uh, where they are. It says, verse 32, Therefore, now 
that, that's cluing us in that we're, we're transitioning away from, from some stuff and going into some parables. Therefore, stay awake. Stay awake. That's very key right there. He also gives us the exact same idea in 44, verse 44. Therefore, you also must be ready. So this idea of stay awake and be ready, synonymous thoughts. And he says, therefore, stay awake for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Now, it's interesting that he, he decides to employ the word your Lord. Um, this is this is the word kurios, and as he's using this Greek word kurios, uh, he's intentionally using that word because it was very much understood that whenever someone uses this word kurios, Lord, that they're claiming to be and making sure everybody understands that they're God. It's not just their servant, it's not just their rabbi, it's not just their master, but he's calling himself Lord God. So he's, he's helping them see that he has all the power of God and all the authority of God to be making these statements. And he says, therefore, stay awake. And so he's, this, this exhortation to them to stay awake carries a lot of freight behind it because it's God himself telling them this. Therefore, stay awake because you do not know on the day your Lord is coming. But know, that, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming... He would not have stayed awake. Um, he would have stayed awake and would, have, and would not have let his house be broken into. So it's, it's kind of interesting here that uh, Jesus is using uh, a thief language to talk about himself. <laughs> we don't normally talk, think about Jesus as a thief. And so as he's talking about the thief, this is not uh, something uncommon. There's a few other verses that he does this. You can see this in 2 Peter 3, 10. Uh, he uses the same language as thief in the night, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with, with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. He also uses this thief language in 1 Thessalonians 5, 4. He says, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, even in Revelation 3, Church, to, Church of Sardis. Um, we need to remember that he's not saying this, uh, not using this idea of thief in regard to, uh, you know, in some kind of moral sense. Like Jesus is saying that, I, hey, I'm a thief. I steal stuff. Instead, um, it's coming, he's going to come like a thief. A thief doesn't I'm just as big a fan as you as the dumb criminals, the ones that kind of do the, hey, is anybody at home right now? No. Oh, okay, I was thinking of stealing something. Like, we don't have thieves call us ahead and leave us a voicemail and tell us that they want us to be awake at 2 a.m. and be asleep at 2 a.m. or whatever. Um, And so (laughs) because of that, he's saying, if you knew, like, when the thief was going to come, you would just make sure that you're awake at that particular moment. But when you don't know when the thief is coming, because generally the thieves don't call you, there are the dumb criminals and we love those stories, but generally they don't. And because of that, you just know a thief is coming to my house sometime tonight, but I don't know when. So what would you do? Would you just fall asleep and hope that, set up your alarm at 2 a.m. and hope it's at 2? No, you would stay awake the entire time. You would be vigilant the entire night because you have a family, because you have possessions, because you have things you don't want stolen. Therefore, you would stay awake. Therefore, you would be ready the entire night. You'd be on the lookout the entire time. And this is the same idea as what he's telling us. So the first action that we are to have is this. Um, The first action that we are to have as believers Living in light of the second coming is that we are to be ready. Just like a thief is coming to your house that night, and you know that he's coming, you would not fall asleep. 
you would stay awake. You would be ready. Whenever I was in high school, I took, um, well, whenever I was in ninth grade, my mom and dad made me take the SAT really early. Um, just wanted to be sure that, you know, um, I, I don't know why they made me take it. Maybe they just wanted to see how, how real, much they really needed to push me in high school. Because if I had a low SAT score, maybe they just figured it's not really worth pushing him. Um, so I, I, uh, I took it in ninth grade. Most people take it in like 11th. And uh, whenever I took it, my, my math score was, was decently high. My verbal score was, was not decently low. I would say extremely low. It was like half my SAT math score. It was really low. And so whenever I was going into high school, um, in 10th grade, my parents said, you have to take SAT verbal. My, my high school offered a class literally just called SAT verbal. And all they did was teach you how to do well on the SAT verbal class. Now, um, it's probably not a surprise, but I did not like that class, nor was I much interested in that class at all. And so uh, I did my best to figure out how many different um, creative ways that I could go to sleep in that class without the teacher knowing. Um, but something that I also learned that 15-year-olds think they're much smarter than the teachers. And now that I'm actually in my 30s, I realize that I'm much smarter than a 15-year-old ever was. And so I'm sure, well, now I I know that my teacher was much smarter than me. So one day, after multiple days of falling asleep in class, she's she's gonna let me have a taste of my own medicine. So I didn't know what happened. This is all what was told to me after the fact. But I went to sleep in my class. Um, By the way, if you're in high school, this is just a story of a pastor that did something wrong like 20-something years ago, and you don't do this, all right? Um, So anyway, I fall asleep in class, and so apparently, as I fall asleep in class, I fell asleep so hard that when the bell rang, which for some reason I didn't hear, um, the teacher whispered to everybody, everybody be quiet. Get up really quietly. And so everybody literally quietly leaves the room, and I am completely gone on, on there. And all of a sudden, the new class comes in. She's meeting them at the door. Shh, shh, and so they all come inside. And I don't know, a good 45 minutes later to an hour, I, I wake up and I'm looking and I'm like, who are these people? <laughs> no, I don't know any of these people. What, what's going on? And I look, I'm like, oh my goodness, it's not you know, fourth period, it's fifth period. And so a brand new class was completely around me. Um, and so I go up to the teacher. I'm like, what happened? She said, you fell asleep. And I was like, for that long? How did I not? She goes, that's too bad. I was like, can I get a, cla- uh, you know, a, a pass to get to the next class? Nope, sorry. You should stay awake. And I'm like, oh my goodness. And so I, I go into my next class. I'm not lying. I go into my next class and I tell the teacher the kind of the story of what happens. And she's, she totally doesn't believe me. I don't believe you. Your teacher would have woke. I'm telling you, she didn't wake me up. She did not wake me up. And so I got really in a whole lot of trouble. Now, my whole point is this. Like, what's that sto- story? Here's my whole point. That is the complete opposite of staying awake and being ready. So if you want to think, what would the Lord have me do and, and, and being ready? If you want to say, what would be the absolute opposite of what he would desire? It would be that story right there. So all the things, don't stay awake. Don't be lackadaisical towards class. Like all the things, be serious towards Jesus. Be ready. If there's, if there's something that's going to happen that's of absolute utter importance, namely the second coming of Jesus then we must be completely ready all the time. We must be staying awake um, because this second coming, as we read in verse 30, that's not a small deal. It says he's coming on the earth. The whole earth will mourn. Everybody will see it. We can also see in verse 27, it says, For as the lightning comes from the east, it shines as far to the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. It's going to be a worldwide knowing that he's coming. And so we can't be lazy. We can't be... 
um, sleeping and not being prepared. Calvin says, God intends to keep us diligent and watching without relaxing even, even one single hour. Even one single hour. Which means, you as a Christian, the second coming is such a huge reality in your life that you should not be going by even one hour without making sure you're thinking about it and living um, in light of it. Now, God has given me this wonderful gift as I'm talking about over and over every week of being ready because I have a pregnant wife whose due date is right now, uh, today, and here I am preaching, which means we don't have a baby. And so um, this, this reality of living, um, and this is like maybe if, if the SAT verbal class is the opposite, this is the way you live in light of it. Um, the fact that my wife is pregnant and at any minute, like, I, like she could call me right now. I don't, I don't if she called, my thing just, my, nope, that's not her. So like, it really did, I just got a text message. So I'm thinking at any moment it could happen. And so the fact that my wife is pregnant and at any day it could happen, this is what, this is where the way I live. It affects where I go. I don't go out of town. It affects what I do. It affects how I answer the phone. Like anything, I'm all, I'm, is it, it affects the way I say things. It affects all my conversations with her. The first thing, Oh, everything good? We about to happen? No. All right. So like everything that's going on in my life revolves around that right now because I am in utter expectation. I'm always waiting. And that's the same thing for this day that's coming with Christ. We are to be living in the exact same way. It's supposed to affect the way where you go. It's supposed to affect what you do. It's supposed to affect your conversations that you have with people. If it's going to come in the next five minutes, in the next one year, then you would be having certain conversations with people about Jesus and not toothpaste or whatever. Like those things, I'm not saying those things are unimportant, but there are certainly more important things. And so we're supposed to be living in eager expectation that it can happen. So what are your conversations like? Where do you go? What do you think about? What, what are the first things that, the first tier of importance levels things that you have with people that might not know Christ or people that might be far and walking away from Christ right now? Um, because this is a huge reality and we're supposed to be living in light of it. It says this, and I, want to look at, I want you to look at verse 43 again. Because it says, But you know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake. This, but, this, but know this, um, we, we may take that as, uh, as a... Hey, but know this. I hope that you know this. This is something that maybe you do or you don't know. I'm not sure. It's not, it's not an imperative like, hey, you need to, I'm commanding you. But instead, it's an indicative. It's something that's already true. It's indicating what's already true of you. It's saying, but you know this. You know this, Christian. This is something that's already put inside of you that you absolutely know. It's indicating what's true of you. It's not a command to know this. Instead, it's saying that you do know that if the master had known what, in what part of the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake. So it's intrinsically inside of you as a believer to realize that the thief is coming at any point. In other words, the second coming of Christ is coming at any point. Therefore, you should be living in light of that. 
And then it says in verse 34, Therefore, you also must be ready. So after he gives us this little story about the master of the house, he tells us in verse 44, Therefore, just in case we we don't understand the parable at all, Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. It's it's not going to be a time where you can schedule it and make an appointment with Jesus and say, Okay, Let's, let's do it at this particular time. I'm free, I'm free at that particular time. All right, I'm going to get all my ducks in a row. I'm going to have everything. That, it, a thief doesn't make us an appointment with you. He doesn't leave a voicemail. And this is the same thing. Since it's going to become at a time we don't expect, therefore, we have to be ready all the way leading up until then. It's not a last five-minute get ready kind of thing. Um, we can't just throw everything together and pray that that's going to be enough. Um, Spurgeon says, we ought to be as watchful as if we knew that Christ would come tonight. That Christ would come tonight. Now, there's a couple things in this uh, thief imagery that I want to point out. This is not going to be on the screen, but it's just a a couple side notes that I think are pretty interesting for us when we're thinking about this thief imagery. Um, There's a couple things. First of all, um, the thief imagery shows us this, that there's value in what he's coming for. Moron, moron thieves don't steal valuable stuff, but most thieves try to steal like valuable things. They come to your house, well, you know, they come to my house, they're going to be really mad. But most thieves, when they come to something, they're actually looking for the valuable stuff and that's what they try to take. And there's, there's something that's being taught to this about Christ. He's coming to get what's valuable to him. We are valuable to Christ. And I think that's something, a good reminder for us to think. What would be a... Uh, Something that would motivate me in order to be ready for Christ's coming. Christ holds you as valuable. Very valuable. You're not just some kind of whimsical, out on a limb, happenstance person that maybe Jesus is excited, maybe he's not excited about. He's very, very passionately in love with you. You're extremely valuable to him. He's coming to get you. He wants you. Not, not the person beside you that you're thinking about. He wants you. Therefore... That should motivate us then as believers to say, if that's the truth, if the Son of God, your Lord, as he calls himself, to make sure we understand he's God, holds us as valuable, well, that certainly causes me to be motivated to live in light of his second coming because he cares deeply about me. The second thing is um, the imagery of the thief, and we've already kind of talked about this, is the need for us to be watchful. D.A. Carson says it calls for constant vigilance. Um, constant vigilance, that we would be anticipatory of his coming, that we would be ready for it. Lastly, Spurgeon um, comments on this little section. He says, we shall be all the more diligent in attending to our earthly duties because our hearts are at rest about our heavenly treasures. In other words, since we know that he's about to come at any moment, there are tasks that show that we're ready that show that we're living in light of his second coming, that show that we're staying awake, show that we're being alert. There's things that we do, active things that we do. We don't kind of passively just float through life. Instead, we attend to all the Christian duties of making disciples, of killing sin, of being intentional with our neighbors, all these things. And he's saying that we are all the more diligent in attending to those earthly duties as Christians because our hearts are at rest about our heavenly treasure. Um. Now, that's the first parable. The second parable begins there in verse 45. So if the first one was about the master, um, the second one is going to be more about the servant of the house. And specifically, as we're looking at the servant of the house, he's going to contrast the good servants with wicked servants in this second parable. Um, But before we go to that, I want to read to you some 
some ideas of Edwards. Jonathan Edwards, who lived a few hundred years ago, um, he wrote resolutions. And these resolutions are just things that he would, um, with all of his might, by the power of the Spirit, try to live by. Um, and these are some of his, his resolutions that he would write about. Um, and these, these particular ones pertain to the end times and, and thinking of Christ's imminent coming at any moment. This is the first one. Um, th- there's a bunch of them, but this is one of them. It says, Resolved, never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. I mean, think about that. That is really intentional living when it, when it comes to uh, the way that I want to live in regard to Christ's second coming. The next one, resolve never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if I expected it would not be above an hour before I should hear the last trump. Resolved to inquire every night as I'm going to bed wherein I have been negligent, what sin I have committed and wherein I have denied myself. Also, I want to do this at the end of every week, the end of every month, and the end of every year. Resolved to ask myself at the end of every day, month, and year wherein I could have possibly in any respect have done better. Resolved, I will never, I will act, I'm sorry, resolved, I will act so as I think I shall judge what have been best and most prudent when I come into the future world. In other words, every act I do, I, sh- I will ask myself, was that the best thing I should have done in light of the fact that I'm going into the future world? Uh, the next one, resolved to endeavor to my utmost to act as I can think I should do if I had already seen the happiness of heaven and hell's torments. If I had visually laid my eyes on it completely already, then I want to do, endeavor to act every way I should and every way I could in light of that if I had already seen it. So as we're thinking about that, we're thinking about the reality that Jesus Christ could come back right now. He could come back next month. Then um, as you're thinking about the way you should be living your life in the next month, Indeed, as Calvin says, every hour attending to our thoughts and thinking about what it would be like. Um, How would you be living differently? What would be the things that would need to change? Would you be found walking in obedience to God or would you be found um, wavering in disobedience? Would you be found being passionately devoted to your spouse or practically negligent of of your spouse? Would you be found loving your neighbor or would you be found ignoring your neighbor? Would you be found um, being in love with sin or would you be found pushing sin away and pursuing holiness? These are the questions that should be on our mind always as we're thinking about the, this first action that all Christians should be having in regard to the second coming, that we must be ready. The next one comes from uh, this parable. We can start here at verse 45. I want to read verse 45 through 51 all the way through um, and then we'll... We'll kind of look at those other three. They're all right there in uh, this parable. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give to them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will, be, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and he will cut him into pieces and put him with the hypocrites 
in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So here's the second parable. As I said, this is about the parable of the servant of the house or servants of the house. And it's kind of broken out into the good servant and to the wicked servant. So we see the good servant in verse 45 um, and really 46 and 47, but 45 especially. He says, so this is the idea of the good servant. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them food at their proper time? And then we have this verse 46, kind of this little... Uh, many beatitude, a blessed. It says, blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. And then verse 47, truly I say to you, he will, and this is kind of the result of that, truly I will set him over all, over all his possessions. And that's kind of the, if he does it, this is what's going to happen. So um, the first proper action we can see right there in verse 45, it says, who then is the faithful? And, and it says, and why servant? So the first one is faithful. So the second proper action for us is faithfulness. The second proper action is faithfulness. Um, This means being trustworthy. He's set us, he's given us something, he's set us over a task. Now, interestingly enough, we read here in verse 45, it says, whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time. And we can read that and say, Hmm, his master has set him over a household to give them food at the proper time. When we read that, we're thinking, who's he talking about? As a matter of fact, a parallel text to this is in Luke chapter 12. um, And Peter literally interrupts right there and says, Jesus, um, who are you talking about right now? Are you talking about the 12 disciples? Um, and then Jesus keeps going on. It's kind of like Peter even, uh, is not even being answered. Um, but most commentators, as they're reading this um, and, or, or, and are speaking towards this, which I think they're right, they say, um, some people will say, is he just talking about the 12? If he's not talking about the 12, is he talking about, kind of about the 12 and pastors over churches? Because he's talking about people being over households and giving them proper food. And sometimes we talk about the word of God being your food. And so we're talking about pastors are the ones that are feeding. I, I don't think that this just exclusively to leadership, 12 disciples and elders. I think this is to all Christians. I think it's to all Christians. He's talking to all Christians and saying, listen, um, the people that I'm talking to are the wise servants, all followers of Jesus that are doing as well. He's giving every single one of us something a good servant is that he is being faithful and prudent and doing what's been assigned to him. Every Christian has been given assignments, if you will, as to what God wants them to do. And so I think here he's speaking to all of them, not just you know, leadership, elders, pastors, even the 12 disciples. And he's telling all of us that we need to be faithful, all of us that we need to be trustworthy, that we're going to carry out the things that he's asked us to do. And so the question then is this, are you being faithful to Jesus right now? Are you being faithful to Jesus? Um, are you faithfully carrying out all the things that he's asked you to do? In here, there's a, uh, as I said, there's a, a, an example of a good servant and there's an example of a wicked servant. And there's three things that I think are present in the good servant. And he contrasts all those three things with the wicked servant. This first one, he tells us um, that we're supposed to be faithful. And if you look down to verse 48, he's going to show us kind of the opposite of that. In verse 48, it says, But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed. This is the opposite. This is not faithfulness. This is carelessness. 
We can see the contrast of that. Let me ask you, here's kind of an example. Um, this could apply for children, but maybe you've, you've experienced this before. Have you ever had a job where you thought, you know, today I'm going to the job and the boss is going to be gone all day? Or they're going to be gone most of the day. And since they're going to be gone most of the day, then what we can do is kind of just do whatever we want. Now, I've never done this before at any of my jobs before. I've been like really, really like awesome at all my jobs. I've never, never had a day like this. But perhaps you have. I'm just wondering if you ever, but you've been gone, the boss is going to be gone all day. We can, you know, set up a basketball court in the office and, and play, and, and, but what happens is, for some reason, the boss comes back on a little surprise sneak attack and busts all of you for slacking off, busts all of you, and like you've got this elaborate game that you had set up that you're planning on tearing down 30 minutes before he gets there, you're back to your cubicles and you're, you're doing your work, oh, it's been, been kind of quiet today, you know, I don't know, so, but like you ever had that happen to you where the boss comes back early? I've certainly, like I said, never experienced this, but however, um, what happens is it's quite unpleasant, Right? It's quite unpleasant when it happens. The boss comes back, and this is the exact same mindset. This guy's like, um, well, he's delaying right now, so he's probably going to be gone a whole long time. I don't have to worry about this. He's going to be gone forever, so I can just do whatever I want. He's going to be delayed. Um, Well, we're going to see here that's not going to go well for the guy. The boss certainly is not allowed to take the same revenge here that's, that's stated in verse 51. It says, I will cut him in pieces and throw him in the hypocrites. And then that place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Perhaps the boss would like to do that. They're certainly not allowed to do that in America, at least. Um, but that's the, that's the future that awaits the careless, wicked servant. So we're called to be the good servant who's going to be faithful. There's a second one thing that we're called to be. Or what are we on? The second one in this one, that was the second. So there's really the third, number three. <laughs> All right, number three, we can see it right there in the exact same uh, verse as the previous one, verse 45. Who then is not just the faithful, but also who then is the wise servant? Who's the wise servant? Um, we're called to be wise. Now, wisdom it just feels like it's something you either have or you don't. It's not like you can just create wisdom uh, in your own life. But I think that as we think about what would be the, uh, the contrast that's given to us, then perhaps as we look at the contrast that's later on in the wicked servant, that at least would give us an idea. We, 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 I think either we're wise or not, and that certainly comes with age. But as we look at the contrast, I think that can at least nudge you in the right direction towards pursuing wisdom. So the second one is wisdom. So we're asking ourselves, are we wise? Are, are we thinking about, um, all right, if, if Jesus is going to come back at any minute, then what, what are the wise things for me to be doing? And what are the unwise things for me to be doing? Um, just an example in my own life. This is, um, I think, really obvious. But he's not going to be really impressed with how many coins I've collected in Temple Run 2. He's not going to be really impressed with that. So it's not very wise to get really good at some meaningless game, right? It's not, it's not really going to impress him whatsoever. He is going to be, it is wise for me, though, to think about my neighbors who might not know Christ. And if I share Christ and they trust Christ, then their futures change forever. So let's look at the, uh, let's look at the contrast here. Um, it's in verse four, back down to 48. But if the wicked servant says to himself, my servant is delayed and begins now to beat his fellow servants. We're going to skip that and go to the next one. And eats and, um, and, eats with, and drinks with drunkards. Uh, the master of that, that servant will come on that day and it'll be a day he doesn't expect. So what we're seeing here is someone who eats 
and drinks with drunkards. And so the opposite of wisdom is someone who uh, pursues and makes wrong choices. Here, his wrong choice is that, oh, here's a bunch of people who are wicked sinners. I know what I'm going to do. They're going to be my best friends. I'm going to hang out with all the people that are um, clearly living lives of sin. Now, I want to be really careful here um, because I want to, I know that it seems like, wait a second, Fudd, you're always saying that we're supposed to hang out with the sinners, um, but now you're saying it's unwise to hang out with sinners. You're contradicting yourself. Let's be sure here that um, this servant that's being described here in verse 49 as hanging out with with drunkards and those who eat and drink with drunkards is not the same as, as when Jesus hung out with those who ate too much or gluttony or drank, um, drank too much wine. The reason why is because when Jesus did it, he didn't sin, he didn't participate in the sin, he did it because he really cared for them, because he wanted them to walk with God. Um, this servant is the one who's like the life of the party. So there's a big difference between uh, what's being described here. So certainly, you're still supposed to hang out with the sinners and, and people that do that kind of stuff, but you're not supposed to be number one life of the party. Um, instead, you're supposed to be there. The wiser thing would be that you would be there like Christ, not participating in the sin, but instead calling them to repentance and faith and walking with God. So that would be the second one or the third one that we're supposed to be doing is that we're supposed to be wise. And then lastly, um, we can see it. And I'll, I'm getting this last one actually from 45 through 47, where it says, Who then is the faithful and wise servant? And that's all we have. Whom his master has set him over his household to give them their food at their proper time. They were, they're willing to do the Lord's work. In other words, if I'm going to give them their food at their proper time, I'm going to consistently be doing the Lord's work because it's at the proper time. It's not just whenever I feel like it. We wouldn't feed our child whenever that we feel like it. We feed them at the proper time or we're gonna be, they're going to have screaming in our ear, right? I'm hungry, man. So here's your food. I gotta get it. I'm not going to just wait whenever I, it's convenient for me. I'm going to be faithful and wise. And then we have this 46, blessed is that servant whom his master will find uh, so doing whenever he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. I'm going to take all that, and I'm going to ask this question. I don't know, if, is it already up? It's not up. Good. Don't put it up there yet. What would cause me to do those first three? Ready, faithful, and wise. What, what, what should cause me to do those things? Fear. I'm scared to death that Jesus is going to zap me. Lightning out of the sky. I don't want to die. I don't really feel like that's the proper motivation. Instead, I think it's this last one, be loving. And there's a contrast we can see in, in, with the wicked servant of where I'm getting this. But the reason why we're going to do these things, the reason why we're going to have a proper action of second coming is because we actually have a real love for God. We really love him. We want to be ready. We want to be faithful. We want to be wise. Not because we're just scared to death of hell. But literally because we love our Savior. More than we can even express in words. There's the contrast that's given to us in the wicked servant. If you look down at 48 again, it says, But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed and begins, here it is, to be his fellow servants. I mean, this is the most unloving thing there is. Someone who mistreats fellow loved ones or, or, or fellow co-workers or whatever you want to say. 
He's literally pushing those that are, away, that are close to him away through beating them. This is the, one of the furthest forms of love there is. So in contrast, it would look like deep hatred. But for us who are believers, it would look like deep love for our Savior. He's calling us to love him. John 14, I think 14 or 14, 15, one of those two says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I mean, I have to say this to my children all the time. Why do you keep daddy's and mommy's um, rules? Why do you want to do what we say? Because you love us. If you love us, you will obey us. We have to say this constantly to them. We don't want them to obey out of fear of punishment or just because they want to get their way or because they think a, a reward or a prize is coming or just because they think, well, I've got to live in this house for 18 years. I better fall in line for it and then I can do whatever I want. I want them to realize that the reason why they obey mommy and daddy is because they love mommy and daddy and because mommy and daddy love them. God loves us deeply. That's why we would want to love him deeply by living in light of his second coming. So let's just bring it down. And I think this is one of the most important ones. Let's just bring it down. Do you have a pattern and a heart that shows, yes, I deeply love God? I do. The bottom of everything, when I, when I get all the way down to the bottom of my heart and I'm asking this one question, do I love God? Do I love him or do I not? I think when we answer that, I think when we really do the heart work, searching our hearts and asking ourselves, do I love God? Well, then we're going to be faithful. Then we're going to be wise. Then we're going to be ready. And if we do, then he says that we're blessed. Verse 46 says that blessed is that servant whom his master will find him doing so when he comes. I don't want you to miss this incredible truth of verse 47. There's an incredible thing that, that Spurgeon, praise God for Charles Spurgeon, that he points out to us. Um, it says, truly I say to you, he will, be, he will set him over all his possessions. This is what Spurgeon says. It should be noted that faithfulness and being wise and being loving, um, look, it should be noted that faithfulness in one form of service is rewarded further by service and increased responsibility. Faithful service is rewarded with more service. It's not rewarded with your name then being lifted up and being put in the lights and saying, oh, isn't he wonderful? It's never been about us and our glory. It's always been about Jesus and his glory. This is something huge to remember. Faithful service is then therefore rewarded with more service that we get to lift high the name of Jesus, not that now all of a sudden you've earned the, the, t- the time to have your name up in light so that everybody can say, Oh, Fudd, you're so awesome. Or, oh, fill in the blank with your name. You're so great. It still remains always to be about Christ and his glory. Faithful service, the reward given then, is now that you get to have more service and more responsibility to even lift higher the name of Jesus. That's a huge point to remember. It's always and always going to be about Christ. But there is given to us, and I've already kind of hinted towards it, um, a, uh, an other side if we don't live this out. Christ does not hide from us what would be our future if we don't follow him, if we don't love him, if we don't trust in his work, 
when he died for us on the cross so that we can receive forgiveness of our sins and we can live in light of that true gospel, that, that good news that now we're forever saved because of Jesus' death on the cross. He doesn't just say, you should do that, you should believe in me, but if you don't, I'm not going to tell you. He's always balanced. He's always balanced. He's going to do it again in 2546. Uh, at the very end, the very last thing of this, when he says, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So just like there's eternal life for those who trust Jesus, there's also eternal punishment. And in this particular set of verses right here in verse 51, he's just giving um, poetic words, if you will. He's just describing what would be the future torment. Um, It's not literal, but it certainly is giving us a description of those who don't trust Christ, what it's going to be like. It says... um, now, this, is not, this is not what the boss gets to do if he catches you slacking off. This is what happens when Christ comes back and you are not found a good servant, but you're found to be a wicked servant. It says, and he will cut him into pieces. This is a reference from 1 Samuel 15, or really just the entire Old Testament. Um, but in 1 Samuel 15, 33, uh, this would be the punishment in the Old Testament that was given to Jewish slaves that were wicked. This is... In line with the entire teaching of the Old Testament, slaves that were Jewish that were wicked, then their master would literally, with a sword, cut them in pieces. And so Christ is just taking that um, imagery that they were all familiar with because this book is written to Israelites and bringing it forward and saying, the master of that servant will come on a day when he doesn't expect and he will cut him into pieces. And not only that, that sounds terrible. That sounds torturous. That sounds like it could be the worst punishment. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. The rest of the verse is the worst punishment where he says he'll cut him into pieces and then put him with the hypocrites. We don't have time, but don't forget all of Matthew 23 and all the extraordinarily strong words that he said to the Pharisees as he called them hypocrites over and over and over. So he's saying these wicked servants, you're going to be cut into pieces, which is congruent with what I said in the entire Old Testament. Then I'm going to put you with the hypocrites. Go read Matthew 23 and realize all the strong words I had for them. And then he says, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is a ref- He's already said this once in Matthew 8, 12. And this is speaking of hell. All of these things are language that clues us into the servant that is not faithful, that is not wise, that is not loving, that is not ready, will suffer the consequences of his sin and will spend eternity in punishment for his rebellion against God. Now, you hear that and you think, is that loving? I would argue that it's the most loving thing that Jesus would tell us. The glories of knowing Christ and the glories of spending eternity with him, but also in balance, not hiding from us the consequences, but also just as much holding up what would be the consequences of it. I think that's equally loving. If he didn't tell us, then every single one of us would gamble on that. We would all just say, well, I mean, it sounds good, but we don't know. This other side could be good. It could be all about me. So the most loving thing he can do is tell us the glories of knowing him and living with him forever if we trust him believe what he's done for us on the cross, receive his forgiveness, and live a life and eager expectation of his second coming or suffer the eternal consequences. At Remedy, I don't talk about this balance, I don't think, enough because I know it can come off as um, 
Bud's just trying to literally, quote, scare the hell out of us. And I don't think heaven is going to be full of people scared of hell. I think heaven's going to be full of people that love Jesus. And so we're not told this just so we'll say, well, I don't want that. That sounds hot and terrible. What's my way out? Jesus? Oh, then sign me up for that then. That's not the idea. We don't trust Jesus just because we don't want to burn forever. We trust Jesus because the weight of our sin has been exposed to us. And the fact that we're sinners breaks our heart before a holy God. And all we, we can't get over the fact that this man would come and die in our place, which we should have died. And we believe in him and we trust him and we love him so deeply that all we want is to pursue him, to know him, to live for him, to love him, to be found faithful in him, to be ready for his second coming. That's what it means. And he holds out the other side for us. Not to try to scare us out of hell, but instead to motivate us and to encourage us to love him deeply. I'm going to pray and we're going to go into a time of response. And however the Lord is leading you right now, would you just be faithful to that leading? Perhaps you want to repent of sin. Perhaps you want to think of these four and say, Lord, if there's any of these four where I'm not pursuing you, show me in my heart so that I will. Maybe you just want to stand and you just want to worship the great God after you confess sin and say, Lord, I need you. I confess that I don't live for you. Thank you that eternity in hell does not await me because of Jesus. Put me on the path towards living faithfully towards you. However Holy Spirit's leading, the Holy Spirit's leading, I ask that you'd be faithful to respond. And if you don't know Christ, come talk to me. I want to tell you how you can know Christ this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for today, for another day to look into your word, to think on what it means to live in response of the second coming and this command to be ready. I pray, God, that we would do the work of searching our soul, searching our heart right now and really asking ourselves if we're living, showing that we're ready. Indeed, every hour, as Edward said, as Calvin said, be with us now as we respond in worship. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.